Thank you for tuning in to another episode of A Business Minute. I'm your host, sir. And today I'm joined with the guest, uh, Dr. Kia Wiggins. How are you today, ma'am? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing fine. And uh, thank you again for being on our podcast. Just like uh, the previous uh, interview I put out for the week, uh, we are doing a mental health week. So if you would, Dr. Wiggins, could you tell everyone what it is that you do? Sure. Um, I am a licensed psychologist. And I'm also a certified group psychotherapist. Okay, okay. And if you could, uh, just maybe a brief detail. Uh, what is it that you do? Okay, so as a licensed psychologist, uh, my primary role is um, providing therapy and mental health services, either individually. So I might have someone come in who's just working on issues related to depression or anxiety or self-esteem. Um, I also do a lot of couples counseling. Um, that could be, you know, married couples or couples that are dating. Um, family therapy is another specialty that I have. And then um, I also do group therapy as well. And then sometimes I'll consult with um, either with other clinicians or different organizations, things like that. Okay, cool, cool. And if I may ask, how long have you been active? Okay, so um, I have been practicing since I graduated from my doctoral program in 2011. Cool. Awesome. Awesome. So, uh, Dr. Wiggins, that always brings me to one of my favorite questions. Uh, what inspired you to get started and seek education in this field? Okay, so um, I am an African-American woman, mm-hmm. and I grew up in a predominantly white environment in the, the Southeast, and um was uh, exposed to a lot of very direct and indirect experiences of racism. So, um, you know, there were occasions where I was either called the N-word or um, just passive experiences of more covert racism. And, and that happened, it started happening to me as a very young child. And so it really made me wonder about people's motivation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I knew as a kid that uh, I hadn't done anything to offend my peers who were being discriminatory against me but I also and I also knew that they weren't bad people Mm. and so I was very confused and so I just I think at that point kind of developed an interest in human motivation and then it wasn't until I took my first psychology class that I realized that there might be a way for me to understand some of the experiences that I had had as a child. And so that's kind of when I became fascinated with psychology. And then I pursued a psychology degree um, at the bachelor's level. And then at some point decided that I wasn't done with psychology. And so I decided that I wanted to continue the degree at the master's level. And at that point, it was less about my you know intrinsic desire to understand people and more about how I could use that knowledge to help other people and at this point my knowledge or I'm sorry my interest kind of shifted from the perpetrator of racism to those who experienced racism and so one of the specialties that I developed throughout my graduate experience was racism in the African-American psyche and so I spent a lot of time researching about it, writing about it, attempting to understand it, and it kind of developed this fascination within taking this knowledge back to the African-American community in some way. So um, I really was just planning on stopping at the master's level, but I had um, a few um, African-American 
know, mentors who suggested that I continue with my education. So after a lot of thought and um, discussions with them, I decided that I would apply to a doctoral program in counseling psychology, and I got in. And so I went ahead and finished that degree as well. So I just went straight through. I got a bachelor's, a master's, and then I got a PhD. And at this point, as a practitioner, um, one of my specialties is African-American mental health, because it's always not just been a fascination, but it's also something that I'd like to bring back to the community to help us in some way. Um, and then along the way, I picked up other specialties, like relationships is one of my specialties hmm. um, as well. So. Okay. And so you mentioned earlier, uh, experiencing racism did have yeah. its hand in uh, shaping, you know, what career field you, you chose. Uh, were there any other obstacles that you encountered along the way? Yeah, I mean, there's actually, there's been a lot of, of obstacles as a an African-American woman in a field that, where I'm, I'm technically the minority. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, right now I'm a practitioner in the community. I have my own private practice, but I'm also um, a visiting assistant professor at a university here. And so I also teach four classes. So pretty, I stay pretty busy. But just um, being involved in higher education and, and not just where I'm, it's not specific to where I work now, but just in general, being the minority at this level sometimes is very difficult because there aren't a whole lot of people that I work with in these professional environments that look like me or have the same experiences or backgrounds that I have. And so sometimes that can be really isolating to not have the same type of peer support that others have that aren't necessarily a minority okay i definitely can understand that with uh that being a constant sense of pressure right so uh with that being the case how do you manage to balance work and your personal life yeah well um, i I mentioned that um i'm teaching um, four classes i have my own private practice and then i also am a part of the african-american heritage society here Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a board member um, of the African American Heritage Society, and so I stay really busy. And um, just being a clinician in general, self-care is really important because a lot of my job is assisting people with their, their mental health issues. And so people are coming to me with their deepest, darkest secrets, which are sometimes very traumatizing, obviously, because mm-hmm. they're in therapy. And so self-care is incredibly important. And so what I try to do is... Um, most of my time is obviously blocked out, so I don't really have a whole lot of free time. But what I do is prioritize the time that I spend with my friends, uh, with my partner. I'm really big on uh, meditation and mm. relaxation, so I make sure that I meditate for at least 15 to 20 minutes a day. So that's just something small that I do every day. Um, and then I also make sure that I always have something to look forward to. And so even if it's a mm. uh, you know, a vacation, I, I, you know, I live in Pensacola, I might plan a weekend in Destin, which is not that far away. So, you know, having those little things helps me to stay grounded, but also sometimes I just have to give myself a day where I don't work. Mm-hmm. And so um, it may mean that, you know, I have to work twice as hard the next day, but having that time off really helps me to, to recharge so that I'm not feeling so exhausted, you know, just never having gotten a break. Okay. Okay. 
and that leads me to my next question uh, with okay. uh, being so invested in doing this for uh, quite a while of course uh, is there any experience so far that you found to be the most memorable you know I, I honestly have so many memorable experiences I'm, I'm honored by being in a position where I can help people mm-hmm. um, to work through a lot of their traumas and um, difficult, some of the most difficult moments in their lives, and those are all really memorable moments to me. I think in terms of my own personal and professional growth, one of the most memorable, memorable, sorry, moments for me was a conversation that I had with my mentor when I was attempting to decide whether or not I was going to continue with my education beyond the master's level. Mm-hmm. Um, I had all these excuses as to why it just wasn't a good idea, and, and one of the excuses that I gave was that it would cost a lot of money to get a PhD. And I was already in debt from having gotten a bachelor's and a master's. And my mentor really challenged me and told me that, you know, she just said, Kia, there are people that spend this same amount of money on houses and cars and all kind of luxury items. And someone can come and take those things away from them. And she said that, you know, you're gonna spend this money on this degree, but nobody can ever take it away from you. It's yours forever. And so that was really the moment where I decided that every excuse that I had wasn't big enough for me to not continue. Um, but until we had this with my education, but until I had that conversation with her, I had never even considered it a possibility for myself. And so because that, that moment was so important to me, one of the things that I've been very um, vigilant and it's very important for me to do is to mentor other people to help them to see that you know possibilities exist beyond what they have possibly always considered for themselves mm-hmm. particularly students of color because you know if you go to a university a lot of times you're not seeing professors that look like you mm-hmm. you're not interacting you know with people that look like you and so I think it sends a message that you don't belong in these fields and that's not true and so to have had someone who saw something in me and planted that seed and continued to encourage me made me want to do that for other people too okay and I, I, I definitely commend your mentor for challenging your mindset at the time to to advocate you know right. you furthering your education I believe we need Big more deal of that for me. yeah yeah, yeah. definitely yeah. a fork in the road that uh, uh-huh. definitely turned out for the better for you. And uh, speaking of challenges, that brings me to my following question. At any point in time, did you feel that you wouldn't be successful? And if so, oh, absolutely. Uh, all right. <laughs> yeah. Who or what changed your mind? I still struggle with that. Like, you know, <laughs> but uh, definitely, I think that, you know, getting a doctor is the most challenging thing I have ever done in my entire life. And so it takes a lot of dedication. And um, I, I actually have a memory of. Um, okay, so when you're getting a doctorate, at some point you have to do preliminary exams. And mm-hmm. so it's after most of your coursework is done, it's a, it, a huge exam where they basically test you on everything that you've learned throughout the program. And um, it's usually pretty highly stressed, and it's a, a really stressful time for people that are getting doctorates in psychology. And I remember calling my dad because I was so stressed out because I was, you know, basically they tell you study for everything and they give you no study guide. Just, you have to know everything, and then you have to come prepared to take these exams. And so um, I was really stressed out. I called my dad, and 
um, I was like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do this. <laughs> like, I don't, you know, I've been studying. I don't know if I'm studying the right thing because I don't have a study guide. I have no idea if they're going to ask me, but I know that everything is riding on me being able to pass this exam. And I remember him saying that if, you know, what I was doing was easy, then everybody would do it. And so, mm. you know, there's this expectation that what you're doing isn't easy, but if you've gotten this far, and at that point, I had a 4.0. I had never made anything less than an A in any of my classes. He was like, I think you're going to be okay. <laughs> I think, you know, I think you, you're going to pass. And he was right, and I did. But in that moment, I really doubted whether or not I was going to have what it takes to pass those exams. And then a similar thing happened for me in terms of the licensing exam, because most people that take the licensing exam for psychology fail it the first time. Mm. It's an incredibly expensive test. And so I had that same fear that, you know, I would be one of those ones that failed it. And, you know, I put, in, put forth a lot of effort and I wasn't. I passed it the first time. And so, yeah, there have been moments definitely in my career where I've doubted my own abilities. And then I, because I think I didn't give up, I still did the things that I needed to do to be successful. So for the preliminary exams, for instance, I still spent eight hours a day studying you know, for the for the uh, licensing exam, you know, I still spent several months studying for it, and so I think that really helped me to be successful in the long run. Okay, that's always awesome. I, I really enjoy that story. Thank All you. right, and so uh, that brings me to my next question, and this one is a a little bit long term. So, okay, if you need a moment to think, I I totally understand. <laughs> okay, <laughs> so. Uh, where would you like to see yourself in one year, in three years, and in 10 years? Right. So I think, you know, part of uh, being someone that is high achieving is that you're always kind of striving toward a goal. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I struggled with professionally was after I graduated, after I became licensed, I didn't really have this concrete goal anymore. I had a full-time job. I was licensed and that was it for me, but um, I didn't feel comfortable with that. And so I had to start finding other things to strive toward. And so for instance, um, I ended up becoming certified as a group psychotherapist and you know, different things like that. Um, and one year I really enjoy teaching um, and you know, I enjoy having the private practice on the side as well. And so I really see myself continuing and, and I've only been at this point doing this for a couple of years and so I kind of see myself continuing along the current path that I'm, that I'm in um, in three years I really have aspirations I've already kind of started a few projects I've already started a couple of books one is um, fiction and I also want to write um, about some of my the observations that I've made in terms of just having how to have healthy relationships the relationships is one of my specialties um, and I also have aspirations of doing something in regard to African American mental health mm -hmm. and so in three years I'm hoping that those ideas and those projects will be more solid um, and maybe I'll have a clearer outline of what they will look like. In 10 years my long-term goal is to travel. Um, I really enjoy doing public speaking about some of the topics I've already discussed so um, traveling, doing public speaking, um, writing books, and continuing to see clients on the side. Mm -hmm. Ideally, I think that's what I would be doing in 10 years. Okay. All right. 
a nice uh, plan and it's good to always hear that some of these things you already have in motion and kind of thought of already yeah thank you no problem so that leads me to another question uh you know and i always dedicate this question to that person who's listening to this who's always considering you know taking that next step and possibly pursuing the same field that you're in uh what, what words of encouragement would you have for them it's it's hard to kind of narrow what what words of encouragement I would give to someone um, so I have to kind of think about if I were talking to someone who is in my similar position you know maybe a young woman of color um, doesn't necessarily have to be an African American woman but a young woman of color who's kind of doubting whether or not she has the ability or whether or not she would actually belong in this field or whether or not this field would be accepting of her, you know, to her, I would say that um, should you choose to do this, it will be a challenge, you know, and that's just true. That's true for anyone. But um, as a woman of color, you will experience challenges that are very unique to that of women of color. And I would tell her not to be discouraged by that. Mm -hmm. Um, I would say, you know, for as a clinician, I am aware, but also personally, I'm aware that we tend to grow the most whenever we are challenged the most. People do not grow in their comfort zones. And so the more you allow yourself to step outside of your comfort zone to pursue something that you might really be good at and that you might really enjoy, the more likely it is that you'll be a seasoned clinician because you had to hustle a little bit more mm-hmm. to get to the place that you're at when things aren't easy it just makes you a little bit more skilled i think because you have to pull, draw upon resources that you didn't didn't know that you had or that you didn't even know were available to you and so to her i would say don't be discouraged the fact that it might be harder for you might make you better at it and to really seek out mentorship i can't stress how important that is because you don't know what you don't know someone who's already been there can help to, to pave that path for you so that would be the advice that I would give okay awesome and uh Dr. Wiggins I, I appreciate you like I said before giving us the opportunity to really take a moment and, and discuss your past and uh just encouraging people who are out there uh so if anyone wanted to maybe get in contact with you or had any questions is there any way that uh, they could get in contact with you and eat. Sure. So um, I have a website. It's www.drkiawiggins.com. Um, and Dr. is D-R. My name is spelled K-E-Y-A-W-I-G-G-I-N-S. Um, and so they can contact me through the website. And I also have a professional Facebook page. It's Kia Wiggins Psychological Services. Um, and then I'm also, I have a, a YouTube page as well, um, mm. where I have a bi-weekly, um, small video that I release every other week about, um, relationship issues, relationship mm. and self-esteem issues. It's called Tell It Like It Is Tuesday. You can mm. also access that through my Facebook page. Okay, cool. Well, I really appreciate that. Uh, I'll make sure to include the links in the description of this, uh, interview here today. Uh, Thank you again, Dr. Wiggins. We appreciate that. And uh, before you go, uh, with you having a segment called Tell It Like It Is Tuesdays, I have to ask you a question. 
Um, sure. And I know this is a, a, a big off off script. Um, okay. But and uh, with you specializing in relationships as well, mm-hmm. are there yeah. any? And and this is just for the sake of having that conversation. Um, right. Are there any uncommon behaviors that you notice that are trending nowadays? Oh, there's lots of common. Yeah, I mean, everybody thinks that their problem is unique, but then when I when I have a couple sit in my office, I've mm-hmm. never I've never seen something where I'm like, oh, I've never seen this before. I mean, it's the same type of issues, same patterns over and over and over again. I would say the most common pattern um, in terms of relationship conflict and honestly relationships go beyond romantic relationships I mean, exactly. they come in many forms you have a relationship with your parents you have a relationship with your sibling with your friends and so usually who you are in one relationship is not that different than who you are in other relationships mm-hmm. uh, but I would say that one of the primary issues that I find that people struggle with is really seeing things from their partner's perspective mm-hmm people end up having the same argument over and over and over again because they're almost like lawyers in a, in a you know, pleading their cases to, to each other. But in this case, it would be, you know, the analogy of pleading your case to the judge, you know, and, and instead of really attempting to understand where the other person is coming from, they will use their own experiences to understand where their partner is coming from. And there's a fallacy in that. So what I hear a lot is, well, I wouldn't do this, so I don't know why, fill in the blank, why they would, right? Mm-hmm. But but that person is not you, and um, they don't have the same life experiences that you had. And so the likelihood that, you know, your partner is doing something to spite you is less likely than they're just doing this because this is who they are, <laughs> you know? So what ends up happening is that people will villainize They'll say they're doing this to me because they want to piss me off mm-hmm. or they're doing this to me to make me mad when really it's like no this is just who you chose you know you chose someone that isn't that emotionally expressive and they've always kind of been this way but you were kind of hoping that you know with time as time went on they would change or you know you chose someone who's more avoidant of conflict and mm-hmm. so when they walk away and you're having a conflict it's not because they hate you or they don't care it's because that's who they are so, uh, yeah, most common mistake, trying to use yourself to understand your, your partner's behavior. So usually in couples counseling, the first thing I do is spend time talking about each person's family culture so we can begin to understand each other in, in the right, in the correct context, instead of someone using their own history to understand their partner, which you're always going to be, you're always going to be chasing your tail. You're always going to be frustrated when that's the case. Hmm. Okay. All right, and you in in that answer, you've actually kind of uh, answered the follow up question I had. And uh, if you don't mind, just one more question. Um, okay. And a lot of times we hear about uh, people seeking counseling or seeking help, but a lot of times people tend to shy away from it. Uh, yeah. What What are some of the reasons that you've encountered that people tend to not seek for help? You know. Well, the biggest reason is you know stigma. I'm not crazy. You know, the belief that you have to be crazy to go to therapy is, you know, it's, it's just, it's untrue. You know, people don't go to therapy because they're crazy. They go to therapy because they're hurting. They go to therapy, you know, because something happened that was beyond their control that they felt injured by. Or they go to therapy because they're doing stuff that they don't understand, but they know that what they're doing is not healthy for them. 
And so you don't have to be crazy or severely mentally ill to benefit from treatment. Sometimes mm. it's helpful to sit with someone who doesn't know you, but who understands people just from a clinical perspective can help you to understand yourself a little bit better. So if you're one of those people that's really struggling or has felt injured in some way and you just keep doing stuff, like for instance, you just keep getting into unhealthy relationships over and over and over again, or you just can't, you know, you always feel bad about yourself, you can't get out of that. If you were to go to a therapist, the therapist could really help you to understand how you got there and, and how to get out of that, that level of suffering. So, yeah, the biggest issue is the stigma that's attached to going to therapy, particularly in the African-American community. Mm. So a lot of times in the African-American community, we don't go to therapy. Instead, a lot of times we'll go to our pastors mm. or we'll go to church, which in and of itself, there's no issue with that. But your pastor may not be trained as a clinician. And so a clinician who's trained to kind of help you to work through some of your life issues is going to have a, a different perspective. And if you find that you've been to the pastor and you still aren't feeling any reprieve, then maybe you might want to consider going to a counselor as well. All right. And I really appreciate you saying that uh, tradition does seem to be uh, one of those outliers. And I'll be honest in my family uh, for situations like that. So I, I really do right. appreciate you. Yeah. speaking on that there is definitely truth in that and uh and again thank you again dr wiggins for 